You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. If you have Bibles, you can start to make your way there. I believe it's page 809 that you can find uh, today's text and most of the text and most of those hardcover Bibles. But as you heard uh, Anthony share for our local Mercy and Justice Initiative in 2024, uh, we're going to continue to focus on fatherlessness and foster care and adoption. Uh, Last January, as we kicked off that year, as we kicked off that month, we learned some about God's heart for the fatherless. Uh, We learned some about how God calls us to act in response to that. This year, we're going to focus a little bit more on the character of our own lives, Uh, because the reality is Christians are not simply people who care about mercy and justice, but Christians are Jesus's merciful and just people. In other words, the, the external actions of our lives are always meant to flow out of a changed heart. We don't do good things, whatever those good things might be, but including foster care or adoption or joining a care community. We don't do that to earn something from God. We are saved by the good work of Jesus. And then we are transformed into people who are increasingly merciful and just. We live out of that new identity that's been given to us by him. So to kick off our new year, we're going to look at this relatively famous part of scripture known as the Beatitudes. And we find them at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 in what's known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, If you're familiar with the Bible, familiar with the Sermon on the Mount in particular, the Sermon on the Mount talks a lot about the ethics or the morals of God's kingdom. Uh, But as you're going to hear in a moment, though there is a huge crowd gathered around to hear Jesus' teachings, the audience of the Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus' disciples. It's those who have already said, yes, I'm following you, Jesus. And that's a really critical distinction for us to get at the very beginning of this series, because otherwise we can start to think in the Beatitudes that Jesus is really just giving us a new law and a new law with an even higher standard, right? If the original law that God revealed through Moses, if that standard was unattainable, if no one was able to keep that well enough or perfectly enough to to merit favor, to merit salvation from God, well, the standard on the Sermon on the Mount is even harder. It's even more so impossible to get. But this is not a new bar for earning salvation. It's how those who have been changed by Jesus are called to live. John Stott says that instead of referring to the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount as Christian ethics or Christian morality, it's better to just simply call it lived faith. Lived faith. It's how we faithfully live out who we are in Jesus. It's how we more become who we really are. That that real and new identity that we've been given by his finished work. And as Jesus has remade reborn people, among other things, we are merciful people. We are just people. So let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll dive in to Matthew chapter five. Our father in heaven, uh, because really that is who you are, God. You are our father. Help us now to take you at your word. 
We ask this morning that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit and that you would not let us close our Bibles. You would not let us walk out of this place this morning without being captivated by your promises and compelled by your mercy. And we pray this for our sake, Father, and we pray this for the vulnerable and for the oppressed, for the fatherless of this world. And we pray all of it in Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse one. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is God's word. Before we look at these first two Beatitudes, it'd be important for us in this series to define a couple words. Uh, So first, what are Beatitudes? What are Beatitudes? These headers that we have here, they're not part of the original text of scripture. It's not a word Jesus uses. A Beatitude, that word comes from the Latin word, which means blessed or happy. And as you can see, as you just quickly even scan those first verses of the Sermon on the Mount, each of those statements in verses three through 11 begins with the word blessed. So that's where that name came from. But that's really the other word that we need to define here from the outset. What does blessed mean? In Christian circles, when when you ask someone how they're doing, they might kind of in a shorthand way, simply reply by saying, I'm blessed, you know, which often means just today's a good day. You know, I'm doing okay. I'm happy today. It's not a terrible day. I'm blessed. But in the Beatitudes, Jesus is not referring to a a temporary or circumstantial or subjective kind of happiness. He's speaking about an objective reality. He's talking here about a condition of well-being, of approval, of being blessed by God. And we are blessed by God, we come to find out in the Beatitudes. We are given these gifts of God's grace as we respond to our new identity with this kind of character. So with that really important background, this morning we're just going to look at the first two Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. For each of the Beatitudes as we walk through them this month, uh, we're going to look at the attribute. You know, what is this characteristic that, that Jesus is saying is blessed? What does that mean? Uh, We'll then look at the the corresponding blessing that Jesus articulates. And then we'll talk about some implications or some applications. What does it look like for us to live in light of of that? So first today, let's talk about blessed are the poor in spirit. And the best picture of this attribute of what it means to be poor in spirit comes unsurprisingly from Jesus too, from another one of his, his teachings. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus teaches a parable about a Pharisee, one of the Jewish religious leaders of the day, and a tax collector. And each of those two men go to the temple to pray. Pharisees, among first century Jewish people, they were respected. They were the righteous ones. They were the put together ones. Their lives were not filled with these kind of glaring external issues, right? They had intact families. They made enough money to pay their bills. They weren't addicted to certain things. They were put together people. Tax collectors, on the other hand, were despised among Jewish people. Often they were, they were dishonest. Often they were cheating people out of more money than they were required to collect. They would just take more and pocket it themselves. 
But even the honest ones, as agents of the Roman Empire, right, an, an oppositional, occupying enemy group, as agents of the Roman Empire, they were considered sellouts, right? They were traitors to God in the eyes of other Jewish people. They were traitors to the people of God because they were working for the enemy. And so this Pharisee and tax collector, they go to the temple and they both pray. And as Jesus teaches that parable, their prayers could not be more different from one another. The Pharisee essentially prays his resume. God, thank you for all this great stuff I do. Thank you that I'm awesome. Uh, Thank you especially that I'm not as bad as that guy over there, the tax collector who's here with me today. Thank you that I'm not that. And then the tax collector prays. And Jesus teaches that he, he can't even bring himself to stand near the front of the room. And he can't even bring himself to lift his eyes up to heaven. He starts to hit himself in the chest. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it looks like. It's to know just how truly desperate you are for the grace and mercy of God. To be poor in spirit is is to have abandoned self-reliance. It's to have abandoned self-confidence, trust in your own abilities, trust in your own efforts. It's recognizing that in ourselves, we have nothing to offer God. The Pharisee in that parable is rich in spirit. He's not poor in spirit, he's rich in spirit. So he comes to God with a lot of stuff in his hands. He comes to God with his resume and his righteous deeds. And he says, God, look at all this good stuff I'm bringing to you. Of course, I'm on the right side of things. Of course, I should be blessed by you. Look at all this stuff that deserves your blessing. But Jesus says, he's actually not the one who receives it. He's not the one who receives God's mercy. The tax collector does. The tax collector is poor in spirit. He has declared spiritual bankruptcy. And if you're familiar with the the U.S. version of the, The Office, the sitcom The Office, he declares his spiritual bankruptcy like Michael Scott declared his financial bankruptcy. Just yells it out loud, like, I declare bankruptcy, right? Deeply aware that he has nothing he can bring to God or earn from God. All he can do is stand at the back of the temple and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he gets exactly that. He gets exactly that. This is one of the many ways a life of following Jesus is radically countercultural. And you're going to see that throughout the Beatitudes. But in our culture, we value self-reliance. We value self-assertion. We value earning things. We like, if we're honest, we like to have, to always have some stuff in our lives that we can point to, some good stuff that we're doing, some hard work we're putting in and say, that's why I deserve a good life. That's why I deserve good things. Look at this stuff that I'm doing. That's why I deserve to be blessed. But in Matthew 5, Jesus is saying, nobody gets into the kingdom of God like that. The rich in spirit don't enter the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's talk a little bit about that specific blessing and what that means. The kingdom of heaven which elsewhere in the Bible is called the kingdom of God or simply the kingdom is not so much a place or a territory as it is the rule and reign of God, of the one true king. And we learn in the Bible that, that, it, that the kingdom is, is, has already come. 
It's already present. It's already been inaugurated by Jesus as he came into the world, as he began his earthly ministry. But it's a kingdom that awaits its complete fulfillment, its consummation in Jesus's return. And Jesus is saying that to be part of this kingdom is a blessing without equal, without rival. It means that we get to live in light of the true story of the world. It means that we get to live under the rule of the true and the good and the only king of the universe. It means that regardless of our circumstances or our level of subjective happiness in any given moment, it means that we have a fixed identity as a citizen, that we forever belong to God. We forever belong with God and that we get to be part of his consummated kingdom when Jesus comes again. And this blessing of laying hold of, of gaining the kingdom of God belongs, Jesus says, only to those who are poor in spirit. Now, what does that mean for us in this month of of mercy and justice? What are some implications or applications of this first beatitude? Well, first and foremost, it means that before we can ever truly display the mercy of God to other people, we have to receive it ourselves before we can ever show the mercy of God to other people consistently, genuinely, we have to first receive it. And so much of the the social action in our world, so many of the good intentions, so many of the heroic efforts, incredible as they are to care for vulnerable people, to do good work in the world, tries to do an end around this, right? We prefer, if we're honest, we prefer to serve people from a place of strength and superiority. Do we not? Like we want to be strong and we want to help people who aren't as strong as us. We want to be better than people who are inferior to us and from our place of superiority, help people that are inferior. And sometimes our good works, even things like caring for vulnerable kids in foster care and adoption, sometimes our good works are done to try and earn something from God, to try to get some favor from him, to try to tip the scales in our favor. But if we want to show people the real beauty and worth of God's kingdom, we have to actually enter that kingdom ourselves. And we never will unless we are poor in spirit. A lot of what masquerades as Christianity in America in this moment, and this has been true, I think, for many decades, but a lot of what masquerades as Christianity in America is really just moralism from people who are still trying to be rich in spirit, right? A lot of good moral people have never really fully embraced their dependence on God's mercy, have never really become poor in spirit. And and if you're thinking about this, if you're evaluating yourself this morning and saying, maybe that's me, right? If that's you, I'm so glad that you're interested in Jesus. And I'm so glad you're interested in Christian morals and Christian ethics. There's probably, if I got to know you more, there's probably a ton that I would respect and affirm about your life and the way you live your life. But if that's you, I just want to implore you this morning, stop trying to earn something you can't earn. Stop coming to God with your hands full, with your resume in your hand. And and please don't become a foster or adoptive parent. Don't step into these different efforts of mercy and justice that we're going to talk about this month as an attempt to show your superiority, to show your strength. Instead, bring your nothing to God. Bring your nothing to God. Cry out to God like the tax collector did. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Recognize your spiritual bankruptcy, your dependence, 
and then receive the blessing of God's kingdom as a gift of his grace, something you could never earn on your own and believe that through Jesus' death and resurrection, you have been offered, you've been given that very gift. A lot of us in this room, a lot of us that are part of this church family have done that. But many of us who, who are Christians, who have, who do realize our dependence, we're gonna continue to struggle with what Tim Keller once called being middle-class in spirit. Middle-class in spirit. In other words, we might not try and be trying to earn God's salvation. We might not be trying to earn entry into God's kingdom by our good works. We, we know better than that. We've maybe been around the church long enough to know that doesn't work. But we still want some credit for all of our efforts, right? We still want some kind of additional blessing for doing the right things. And so maybe this morning, as you think about it, you're not rich in spirit, but you're not really poor in spirit either. You're middle-class in spirit. If so, I would call you this morning to remember how needy you are for the mercy of God. And and when we come to this table in just a little while, this table is the weekly picture of exactly how much we need the mercy of God all the time, right? This table exposes us as needy people who can't do it on our own who constantly need the mercy and grace of God. Any ministry of mercy that we participate in, be that foster care, adoption, safe families, being in one of the care communities, all of that is meant to be motivated by the mercy that we have first received ourselves. And so let's begin this month acknowledging we really are, our condition left to ourselves, we really are spiritually poor beggars. That's who we are. But through the great mercy of God, through the work of his son, we now get to be beggars who show other beggars where to find the bread. So blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Second, let's talk about blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. There are, as I know you're aware, uh, there are many reasons to mourn in this life. We mourn our disappointments, things which just have not gone the way that we thought they would go, the way we wanted them to go. We mourn losses, loved ones die, relationships end. We mourn changes, people move away, we move away, jobs come and go. But this attribute, this particular kind of mourning that that Jesus seems to have in view here is a mourning over sin and over evil and over all of its effects in the world. A big part of that means that that we become people, as Jesus' followers, who mourn our own sin. So we don't just simply acknowledge our spiritual poverty, we're actually grieved by it. We experience what the apostle Paul would go on to call godly grief or what the prophet Isaiah experienced centuries before this, where he glimpsed the throne room of God and he saw the holiness and the majesty of God and he said, woe is me, I am ruined. Like, I don't, I don't live up to that and I'm mourning that, I'm grieving that. One author talks about this as the difference between confession and contrition. Confession and contrition. Confession is an acknowledgement of our sin. It's agreeing with God that our sin is wrong. Contrition is actually feeling the sorrow of that. It's actually mourning our sin. And confession and contrition are supposed to go together. 
They're supposed to go hand in hand. But if we find ourselves confessing things without contrition, if, if confession ever come, becomes for us a transactional, rote, mechanical kind of exchange, what that means is that we've actually lost sight of just how horrific our sin is. Just how much of an offense it is to a holy God that we do not live in light of his ways and his design. That it's an offense to him. Uh, We've lost sight in those moments of the way our sin hurts and wounds other people deeply. The way that our sin contributes to the corruption of this good world that God made. See, for the good news of Jesus to actually be good and for us to perceive the goodness of it, the bad news first has to be bad. As the Puritan Thomas Watson once put it, until sin be bitter, until sin be bitter and we taste the bitterness of it, Christ will not be sweet. So to become someone, to be someone who mourns is to see sin for what it really is and to grieve, to grieve that. Now that's true for our own sin. We are people who pursue both confession and contrition, but it's also true when it comes to the sin of the world. Our hearts are meant to break. Our hearts are meant to grieve and mourn for the things that break the heart of God. Both the the sin that's at at the root of everything that's gone wrong with the world, but also all of the symptomatic ripple effects of that. And again, this is incredibly countercultural. This is incredibly countercultural. You and I live in a world which tries to avoid this kind of mourning at all costs. At all costs, the aim in so much of what we consume from an entertainment standpoint, the aim of so much of the the leisure activities, the free time activities, the other kinds of things that our lives can be involved in, the aim of so much of it is to keep things light and superficial, right? Rather than entering in to the reality of what sin does in the world and mourning that, we prefer to be entertained. We prefer to be entertained. But Jesus' followers are those who mourn. And not exclusively, right? Christians are also people with, with deep, sustainable joy. But Christians are mourners. We are sobered by the fact that so much in this world at this moment is not the way it's meant to be. And, and as Jesus' followers, we, we refuse to bury our heads in the sand about that. We grieve that. We weep over both our sin, yes, but also the sin, the condition of this world. And those who mourn like this, Jesus says, those who mourn like this are blessed. They are blessed ones. Why? Because they will be comforted. What does Jesus mean by this blessing? Well, just like the kingdom of God is both now and not yet, This comfort, this blessing of comfort that Jesus describes here is both present and future. In the present, right right now, there's the deep comfort offered to us of forgiveness. When we mourn our own sin, when we experience that godly grief, it leads us to repentance. And when we do that, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's also the present comfort of the presence of God. God is described in the Bible. This is an incredible name, incredible title for God. One of the ways God's described in the New Testament, the God of all comfort. The God of all comfort. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed in his high priestly prayer, when he says that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, 
after he dies and rises and ascends back to the father, he calls the Holy Spirit, the helper. And one of the meanings of that word is, among other things, comforter. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. And so those who mourn have a current present comfort because the God of all comfort is our God. And because the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the comforter dwells within us. But there's also, Jesus says in this beatitude, a future comfort. There's a confidence that those who mourn shall be comforted. Because those sin and evil do affect our world in so many ways right now. They will not do that forever. They will not do that forever. And we, we come into every January and we talk about the hard things playing out in our world and in our lives and in our region. And we come in going, one day God will make an end to all of those things. One day, even though so much right now is not the way it's meant to be, one day it will be. It will be made right. One day, you heard in the words of encouragement this morning, as Isaiah promised, the beauty will replace the ashes. The oil of gladness will replace the mourning. The garment of praise will replace the spirit of heaviness. One day, all of the tears of our mourning will be wiped away from every eye. One day, everything will be made new. See, those who mourn in this life, those who are willing to be honest and to align themselves with the reality of what sin is and what sin does are also those who will experience the reality of all things being made new. We who mourn our sin, we who mourn the sin of this world will, when Jesus brings his work to completion, we will be comforted. Now, what does that mean for us in this month of mercy and justice? How, how can we live in light of this second beatitude? Well, as you continue to grieve your own sin, let's certainly do that in our own lives. But I want to call you specifically this morning and this month to mourn the sin and the evil that persists in our world. And specifically to mourn the kind of sin, to mourn the kind of evil that causes families to break apart that causes children to grow up without one or both of their parents. I want to call you this month to mourn the sin and the evil, which renders biological parents incapable of caring for their own kids. Right? It's so easy for us, if that's not our story, to look at those biological parents who are not caring for their kids and to, to villainize them, to see them as the villains in this story. But we don't realize that under the surface, there's so much that's going on in their lives and often so much that's happened to them that they're just utterly incapable of providing a healthy and safe environment for anybody, even themselves. We got to mourn that. We got to grieve that that's the case. We need to mourn the sin and the evil, which leads fathers to bail, which leads men and women to become addicts where they can't care for anybody else. There shouldn't be, can we agree with this together this morning? There shouldn't be that many kids in foster care. There shouldn't be 13 to 15,000 kids in foster care in Pennsylvania. There shouldn't be that many broken families. The church should not be as absent as it often is from places of deep need. We shouldn't be making government agencies and nonprofits carry the weight that we're actually supposed to carry. This is not the way it's meant to be. And I want to call you this morning, not to just to mourn that in general, but to mourn this about our own backyard, the time and place which God providentially has put you and I in. This is not the way it's meant to be in Cumberland County or Dauphin County. Right? Shay and I can look out our own front door 
at what has all the appearances of this nice, quiet suburban street two miles from here and have constant reminders, this is not the way it's meant to be. As you begin this new year, take the sin and the evil of our world seriously, right? And rather than, rather than griping about things, because that's easy, right? It's easy to complain. Rather than griping about the state of things, grieve the state of things, mourn the state of things. Ask God to really break your heart for the things that are breaking his. And then let that mourning, let that grieving, let that become our springboard for action. So men and women, Jesus has revealed to us in this sermon, in these Beatitudes, the picture of a truly blessed life. And countercultural, counterintuitive as it may seem, you are blessed when you are poor in spirit. You are blessed when you mourn. Jesus himself, the one saying these words, has shown us this path. Because Jesus, being equal with God, emptied himself. He had the resume of all resumes, but he humbled himself to the point of death. And because he did, all we need to bring to God, all we can bring to God is our nothing. And on multiple occasions in his life and ministry, weeping and mourning over the condition of the world, mourning the the condition of the hearts of image bearers of God, Jesus, who is called in the Bible, the man of sorrows, offered up his life to secure our eternal comfort. So may you know the poverty of spirit, which secures your citizenship in God's kingdom. May you know the mourning, the kind of mourning, which lays hold of the God of all comfort. And may you know the mercy of God that you might truly show it to others. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our God and father, you have sent your son to be our savior. And we thank you for that unbelievable gift of your mercy and grace. We have nothing to offer you and you have offered us everything in Jesus. He is the light in our darkness. He is the hope in the face of hatred. He is our peace amid the turmoil of the evil and the wickedness of our world. And in your word, as we've seen, and now at your table, as we come, we see Jesus and we know all of your promises are true. So before you send us out today, strengthen us to live in light of your salvation. Strengthen us to live in light of your mercy. Remind us of our poverty of spirit and of our welcome into your kingdom. Move our hearts to mourn our sin and the sin of our world. And then comfort us with your forgiveness and hope. And compel us, even as we come needy to your table this morning, compel us to live faithfully as your merciful and just people in this world. We pray all of this. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.